We asked the question last week, um, can I believe in God? Or is there a God? It's kind of a starting point, and hopefully what we'll see as we work through these various questions each week, hopefully what we're trying to do is not just to kind of, in a kind of scattergun way, just throw a load of questions out there uh, and try to answer them. Hopefully we're going to build up one on top of the other. Uh, And the question that we're asking this week is, can I really believe in miracles? Can I really believe in miracles? We're going to see in a minute how that question is actually related uh, to last week's subject. Uh, I found that question, however, really fascinating. I've had the privilege of lots of conversations with people over the years where for some, uh, this is a really challenging issue. This is a stopper for any idea of believing in God, for any idea of Jesus uh, as uh, a significant historical figure, the things that he claimed to do, all the, all the rest of it. Uh, we, I, that's just a blocker. I live in a world where what I see is what I believe in. I find at the same time we have a really interesting and kind of contradictory relationship with the idea of miracles. On the one hand, we, we want to kind of put them on one side and not believe in them. And yet, there's other moments in our life when we really hope and want to believe, and yet we, and yet we also have that question mark, is it possible? I also find it really interesting that the language of miracles and the miraculous is something which we use regularly in our culture. Some of you might remember um, back in the Olympic, the Rio Olympics, there were a number of uh, TV presenters who were doing a a long cycle ride uh, to Rio, and Charlie Webster, uh, a sports presenter, was cycling, and she she successfully made the trip, Uh, and then a, a day or so afterwards, she was struck down with the most terrible case of malaria. Her life was uh, really in the balance. It was, it was really, really touch and go. Uh, and the, the story disappeared off our radar like most of our media. We get the buzz exciting story and then we move on to the next and we move on to the next. I was absolutely delighted to see when I googled it just the other day in preparing for this that actually she, uh, she's making a a steady recovery from that terrible ordeal, which is great news. In the article, however, the the language which was used is really interesting. Uh, Let me read you the title. It's a miracle I'm still alive. Rio Olympics presenter Charlie Webster reveals her remarkable recovery after battling back from the brink when she was moments from death with malaria. It's a miracle I'm still alive. Isn't that fascinating? I, I don't know what her thoughts are, uh, but we, we see and desire and hope for something bigger, don't we? we? We hope for something outside of ourselves. And yet at the same time, when we come to the Bible, we often become uh, skeptical. We, we want to We want to create the idea that all the things that we see described in the Bible have some sort of natural 
explanation. Again, uh, I did a little bit of a search around the internet. What are some of the things that are being said? Well, we have an account of Jesus who was walking on water, and somebody has suggested that that was actually uh, walking on a, a, a small ice formation, um, which is a phenomenon known as spring ice. It's the meeting of fresh water and salt water, which, which is an interesting concept. Various other scientists think that's rubbish. Some scientists thinks it, think it's remarkable. I find it amazing that we have to find a reason uh, for that phenomenon to be explained away with something very natural. Because on the one hand, in our most desperate moments, we hope and we pray for miracles. And yet, on the other hand, and I want to suggest this to you before we have a look at whether we've got any questions, I want to suggest to you that we are very much located in our culture. There are many, many cultures around the world who naturally expect for the miraculous to happen. In fact, if they came into our world, they would be very surprised that we don't have any idea of anything outside of ourselves. Uh, it's just totally normal that something outside of ourselves, outside of our explanation, would happen. Of course it would. We live in a very culturally bound kind of view, don't we? And sadly, we also think that we are very much superior to every other view. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? I'm just going to see if we've got anything that we can pop up on the screen. Anything that's come through yet? Do angels really exist? I think that is really, really helpful question. Thank you for that. Do angels really exist? I, I kind of don't want to answer that. But hopefully, when we get to the end of the session this afternoon, hopefully we'll have reached a point where we are able to answer that. Uh, and so as we go on the journey, maybe we can come back to that. Well, I'll try and... Ash, just wave a hand at me if I don't come back to that one, because I want to come back to that one at the end. I, I want to answer just that kind of question as we go through this afternoon. So thank you. Uh, for that question. Maybe if there's another one, should we ask for or expect miracles? That's another great question. Um, on the one hand, I would say absolutely we should. Absolutely we should. There's many situations where the only way in which we can see a way forward, um, let's take even, for example, Charlie Webster in her critical condition. The medical people say, really, it was a miracle that she survived. There's one way that you can look at it looking backwards and say it's a miracle that she survived. I want to place ourselves prior to the event, and we have somebody who we love who is in that desperate situation. Should we ask for miracles? Absolutely. I would say we should. The question is out of this particular question is, who should we ask? That's an interesting kind of step on, isn't it? Should we ask for miracles? Well, I think we should, yes, but the question is, who has any kind of authority to deliver a miracle? So maybe that, that hopefully 
Again, great question. I think we'll come back to that as well. Should we ask? Yes, I think we should. But who should we ask? And why should we ask them? You see, this, is, this question that we're asking this week is really connected uh, to last week. Is there a God? There are different concepts of God, different ideas of God, and yet Mark makes it really clear what his uh, concept of God is as far as we are able to see in the world in which we live. He says right at the very beginning of his account of Jesus, he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he says. So he makes this claim right up front. He starts actually... Mark starts his account of the life of Jesus with the most enormous, dramatic, incredible miracle claim. Do you notice that? When you think about miracles, when we think about miracles, we often think about the things that happen, the things that we do, the things that we see Jesus doing, and we think, well, that's a miracle. Actually, Mark makes the most astounding miracle claim right at the very beginning of his account. He says that God has made himself present in this world. That's amazing, isn't it? It is miraculous in the sense of the idea of a power, a supernatural power, a supernatural outside of anything that is simply contained in this world Jesus, he says, is the great miracle. What he hopes to encourage us to do, therefore, is he's suggesting in answering this question, can I believe in miracles? He's almost wanting us to reverse our thinking. Let me put it like this. We, we sit in 21st century uh, Great Britain, and we'll take the miracle that we talked about with regards to Jesus walking on the water. And we sit here and we say, walking on water? Is that possible? Have I ever seen anybody do that? Is that something that is, apart from, what was his name? Dynamo. He did it on the Thames, didn't he? We'll ignore that one. Is that something that's even possible? Therefore, because I don't think that's possible... I'm going to reject the whole idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Mark says, I want you to just think about it in a very different way. I want you to start with the most remarkable claim. You start with the idea that he's saying that God has come into the world. I want to suggest to you that if that is possible, then really everything else is small fry, to be honest, isn't it? That, that's the kind of turnaround that he's wanting to introduce into our thinking. If it's true, this idea that God has come into the world, then it's completely reversed. Anything is possible. And that's why I find Mark such a really incisive writer. But the other thing that he does is he makes this claim not out of some sort of mystical writing, but as we saw last week, he makes this claim 
out of what he describes as historical events. He says, these are the things that happen. He writes them so close to the life of Jesus that there would have been thousands of people receiving these copies of what Mark had written saying, who were able to say, do you know what, it wasn't anything like that. And yet it's written so closely and it gains such a quick response and such a great acceptance that there is a suggestion in that that what he was saying as historical events were actually what would ha- had happened. So he's reversing our thinking, and at the same time, he's touching into something that we saw last week as well. He's saying there is something about the outside of us. There is something about the supernatural which we want to contend with, which we want to think about. And he says we can understand that through the one who's made himself present, Jesus. So that's the claim that's made. He's saying, look, in answering this question, can I believe in miracles, reverse your thinking. Start with the greatest miracle and the most outrageous claim, and we'll work from there. So I'm just wondering whether we've got anything else that we can just pop up uh, on the screen, any other questions that have arisen from that? There's a debate going on about which question to put up here, I think. (laughs) There was a finger up, there was a definite thumb up there. Okay, does God intervene in our lives to continue performing miracles, or do we just take it for granted that something good has happened? That's a really, really interesting question. Things that happen, things that go on, Is that God intervening in a miraculous way, or is it just a good thing? There are good things that happen. There are many good things that happen in our lives. But each single event is not disconnected from a multitude of other events. I remember a guy called um, Tim Keller explaining this in a really powerful way. He said, is it, I suppose we will paraphrase the question that he was asked and say, is it a miracle that you are now in New York City and you have a church of 9,000 people when you started off with 30 people in New York City? A difficult place to have a church. Uh, And his answer was really quite interesting. He said, well, How did I end up here? I ended up here because I was taught by a particular guy in seminary. And his teaching was so powerful, so clear, something which really struck a chord with me that it has influenced me for the whole of my life. How did he end up in that teaching role? He ended up in that teaching role because he was previously in a political role. uh, And he lost his job And uh, he found faith as a result of that whole experience. How did he lose his job? He was caught up in the whole Watergate affair. Do you remember? Some of you might uh, remember that. Richard Nixon uh, and uh, the um, recording, the um, 
hidden recording on various uh, of the opposition party. He denied that it had been done. And uh, the reality was that he had lied to the country and all the rest of it, had to leave his post. Uh, he was caught up in that. How did that happen? How did Watergate happen? Well, it happened because, actually, when you go through all of these different layers, it happened because one person uh, left the security door open, a cleaner left the security door open, uh, and they, somebody was able to go through that door, uh, and it was all discovered by the reporters. What he's suggesting is, actually, in another way, when we see the interconnectedness of what we actually think is just a normal, ordinary event, even those normal, ordinary events can be quite remarkably miraculous in the connections of all of the incredible things that have happened. So he actually said, he said the reality I could say is, I am, teach, I am leading this church in New York of 9,000 people because somebody left a security door open during Watergate. And I, I th suppose what he's trying to help us see is we actually only want to see those dramatic events as miracles, and they are, and yet at the same time, the series of interconnected events are so often also absolutely miraculous. Hopefully that's uh, gone a little way towards answering that question. Is there anything else? Why doesn't God perform more miracles for everyone? <laughs> wow. That, that seems such a kind of, a, well, interesting question. But the reality behind that question, I think, is profound. Why doesn't God perform miracles for everyone. Because the reality is, if God did perform those miracles for everyone, wouldn't the world be such a different place? It would be, if, if God intervened in every situation and it all turned out for good, wouldn't the world be such a different place? And the answer to that question is, on the one hand, I really don't know. I don't know why he doesn't, but I think this question leads into, here's the heads up, I wasn't going to mention this until the end, I'll mention it now. This question leads into next week's subject, which is, is there hope in a violent world? Is there hope in a violent world? I've phrased it deliberately like that. Uh, so that we, we keep our eyes focused, not just on the terrible natural things that happen, but the world, the violent world that we live in. And we say, why doesn't God intervene? It's kind of playing into that. So I'll answer honestly and say to some extent, I don't know. But I want us to continue on this journey of thinking about these various questions. Because the question that we've asked is, Mark is say, saying, right, when you talk about miracles, change your thinking and put this dramatic miracle uh, of God present in the world first and foremost. He, Mark is presenting Jesus as a historical character, and the events that happen 
as historical events. So what are the miracles and why are the miracles there? Are they just sort of magic tricks that Jesus performs to say, it's me, here I am, here's another magic trick. Let's just pause for a minute because I think the answer to the next question answers why the very many miracles that are presented to us occur. And it's this. If, as Mark says, this is God present in the world, there is a really simple question that you've got to ask out of that, which is this. Why did He come? (laughs) Isn't that... Isn't that a really important question? It's God present in the world. Well, okay. Did He come just to do amazing things so that we all go, wow? You've got to ask the question, if God came into the world, why did He do it? If we have that on the forefront of our minds as we enter into the next few little cameos of the things that Jesus did, maybe we start to get some understanding. You see, Mark doesn't present the miracles of Jesus as some sort of set of magic tricks. He presents them with a reason and with a purpose. He presents them because he wants to show that not only is this the promised one, the Messiah, God present in the world, he is also coming into this world with an authority. What kind of authority is this? We're going to look at four things and then one thing. First thing, he comes with an incredible ability to teach. It's one of the things that, that's not a miracle, is it? And yet, in another way, it's miraculous, the level of Jesus' teaching. It's not a miracle, but Jesus, again and again, we see him teaching people. He sits down with ordinary people. He sits down with the religious elite. He sits down right across the social spectrum, and he teaches people. But what's remarkable about Jesus is the way that he taught we read in Mark chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22 that they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. That was one of the wows about Jesus, is that when he engaged and when he taught, he spoke in such a massively different way. He's not saying, uh, here's the Old Testament and here's what the laws mean. He's speaking in a way which just got people. It was remarkably different. There was an authority to Jesus' teaching which was unlike anything that anybody had ever seen before. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that he has is an authority, not only over the way we think, but an authority over the world that we live in. Remember Mark is writing a historical account. There's an occasion where Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee, huge lake, 
Uh, and because of the geography of the environment, it's also pr uh, prone to pretty serious weather conditions, dangerous uh, fishing boat sinking weather conditions. Jesus is out in the water with um, a group of men who are fishermen. They're used to it. They're terrified. We read in the account in Mark chapter 4 that there's a moment where they, uh, Mark describes where Jesus was, and it says that he was lying on the, at the back of the boat on a cushion. <laughs> I, I remember when I first read that, and it's only later on in life I realized the significance of Jesus lying on a cushion. On the one hand, it's not significant. On the other hand, it's Mark saying, I am writing in a way to describe accurately the events that happened. This is a historical account. Where was Jesus? He was asleep on a cushion at the back of the boat. And they were terrified. And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Wow. What is Mark saying? He's saying he has an authority to teach in a way which is remarkable. He has an authority over the world that we live in, which is absolutely remarkable. You ever slipped in the bath? <laughs> and uh, the water starts sloshing backwards and forwards, and you're trying to control it as it's going uh, over the end of the bath at each end. It's everywhere, and Jesus controls a whole lake with a few words. He controls and has authority over sickness. Mark chapter 1 and verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Why does Mark say that? Because he's speaking to our human condition. He's saying there is an event which happened which shows that Jesus has an authority over the kind of things that we have no control over. I, isn't medical science amazing? I think it's absolutely fantastic what we're able to do now compared to what we were able to do in the past. Amazing. And yet, wouldn't it be amazing, even more amazing, if there's somebody who could come in and had an authority over sickness which just said, go. <laughs> and it went. It's the kind of authority that Mark is suggesting. He goes one step further and he talks about an occasion when uh, he's asked to go to a house of a little girl who's sick. And when he gets there, he finds that she's already died. And in that culture, they had professional mourners. Some cultures still have professional mourners. People who cry appropriately. So you bring them in and they create the kind of uh, dirge that is appropriate for a death. Jesus came in and he said, she's just sleeping. And they laughed at him. Mark chapter 5 and verse 40. They laughed at him. Why did they laugh? Because they know what a dead person is. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were, up, who were with him and went in, there with the with the went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up, and she did. Our greatest fear, the final enemy, Mark says, Jesus had an authority over even that. That's amazing, isn't it? Our greatest enemy, 
And you'd say, well, that, that, that kind of, that, that's either outrageous or the best hope that we could possibly have. What Mark is doing is saying, here he is, Jesus the Son of God. Now, let me give you the reasons why I think it is reasonable for you to believe that this was Jesus the Son of God, because he had authority in these areas. However, there's one occasion which I really want to draw your attention to, which is uh, a little insight into answering the question, why did he come? There's an occasion where Jesus is teaching again, kind of brings lots of things together. And uh, as he's teaching, I can imagine uh, the scene crammed in, couldn't move for people, and then dust starts to fall, first in little kind of sprinkles, then it gets a bit bigger, and then chunks of the ceiling start to fall down, falling onto Jesus, mud, dried mud starting to fall onto him, uh, and then the roof gets ripped open. And lowered down in front of Jesus is a man who is unable to walk. Sickness. And, and Jesus says to him, what, what, no, let's put pause. What's the obvious need there? <laughs> What's the obvious need? The obvious need is, needs to be healed. And Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven you. I guess he carried on teaching that. People probably would have thought, look, isn't there a more obvious problem? And yet there were religious people who were absolutely outraged. And here we get to it in Mark chapter 2 and verse 6. Some teachers of the law were sitting, to, sitting thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they knew that when Jesus said your sins are forgiven, they knew that he was claiming to be God himself. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. See, that gets to the very core of the question, why did Jesus come? The big claim that Mark makes is he is the Son of God. Then he says, here's the reason why you might believe it, but this is the real fundamental reason, because we have a problem with God. It's described as sin. That kind of steps us right into next week, which we're going to cover. We're going to ask if there's any, anything that we can bang up on the screen. There's a thumb there. Can we do miracles? Um, I think the best way for me to think about this, as I look and reflect on what we've looked at there, can we do miracles? I think what, what is being made really clear here is that the power and the authority to perform miracles is in Jesus and therefore in God. So if by some 
incredible, miraculous intervention of God, I or you might be involved in something which is miraculous. Who's performed the miracle? The answer to me is still the same. It's still Jesus. That's the way I would see that answered. Anything else? Miracles arise from often tragic occurrences without which a miracle could not happen. Is it therefore right to say that we must have suffering to see the miracles? That is just a really great question. (laughs) Do we need the bad so that we might see the good? There's something which tells us, isn't there, that the desperate need for the good is because the world is not as it should be. It's not as it should be. We need not just a fixing, (laughs) we need a miraculous intervention. That's what we really need, and that's why this question is just so important to us. Because the broken world that we live in isn't as it should be, and we can't fix it. I think that's one thing that I would suggest. For the past hundreds of years, we've been on the great human endeavor of fixing the world. And here we are, and it still ain't fixed. The answer to me revolves around Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What we need is not our ability anymore. We need a miraculous intervention from outside of ourselves. I suppose if everything was perfect, there would be no need for a miracle, would there? We wouldn't need it. So in one sense, that, yeah, I think we do need to see the worst so that the amazing intervention can take place. As we close... I think one of the things that we see in Jesus is He confounds our expectations. I said earlier on that there are some groups of people who would think, of course you believe in miracles, and another group of people who says, absolutely no way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23 and 24 says this, we preach Christ crucified, and that message is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, effectively, Paul is saying, Jesus just confounds all of of us in some way. He changes our views in some way or another. And so, I would suggest if we can't ignore the question of, can I believe in God? And we see the claims that Mark makes about Jesus. So we can also say from this week, I also don't think that we can ignore the claims of what Jesus did. I promised I'd come back to the angels one, didn't I? Um, I, I think the Bible makes it clear that angels are a creation of God, the same as you and me. I think that when we think about angels, we're very often confused by the sort of 
medieval paintings of wings and all the rest of it. And, and I think when we see angels appearing in the Bible, time and time again, they look like ordinary human beings, ordinary people. But what I would say is this, and hopefully this comes out of the back of this discussion this evening. Angels are really a tiny, tiny issue compared to the idea of God in the world. Do you see? Do you see? It's important. It's important that we don't stop and say angels don't matter. They do matter. But in relative terms, where do we want to answer that question from? Do we want to answer the question from the point of skepticism about the idea of God present in the world? Or do we want to answer the question from the idea of saying, I believe that God was present in the world, therefore what does he tell me about angels? Do I believe in angels? Yes, absolutely. There's a chapter in a verse in the New Testament which tells us that we should always be very diligent in giving hospitality because some of you have given hospitality to angels without even realizing it. Do you know what? If somebody walked into my front room with a pair of wings and a great big shiny halo and uh, stayed for tea, I think I'd notice it. Uh, So I think that gives us a little indication of how the New Testament teaches us about angels. I'm going to pray, and uh, if there's anything else, by all means, grab a hold of me, but we'll conclude. Father, we thank you for the amazing message that we see in the book of Mark, which says no less than God present in the world in Jesus, your Son. As we think and work through these really complicated issues and questions, we pray that we might not stop searching. We pray that we might keep digging. We pray that you might continue to bring in front of our eyes the things that we are unsure about and the things that we doubt. But we pray that you'd also be very kind and help us by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.